Section 18 of The Wallet of Kai Lung by Ernest Brahma. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The Probation of Sen Heng, Part 1. Related by Kai Lung at Wu Hui as a rebuke to Wang Yu and certain others who had questioned the practical value of his stories. It is an undoubted fact that this person has not realized the direct remunerative advantage which he confidently anticipated, remarked the idle and discontented pipe-maker Wang Yu, as with a few other persons of similar inclination. He sat in the shade of the great mulberry tree at Wu Hui, waiting for the evil influence of certain very mysterious sounds, which had lately been heard, to pass away before he resumed his occupation. When the seemingly proficient and trustworthy Kai Lung first made it his practice to journey to Wu Hui, and narrate to us the doings of persons of all classes of life, he continued. It seemed to this one that by closely following the recital of how mandarins obtained their high position and exceptionally rich persons their wealth, he must, in the end, inevitably be rendered competent to follow in their illustrious footsteps. Yet in how entirely contrary a direction has the whole course of events tended. In spite of the honorable intention, which involved a frequent absence from his place of commerce, those who journeyed thither with the set purpose of possessing one of his justly famed opium pipes so perversely regarded the matter that, after two or three fruitless visits, they deliberately turned their footsteps towards the workshop of the inelegant ming Yo, whose pipes are confessedly greatly inferior to those produced by the person who is now speaking. Nevertheless, the rapacious Kai Lung, to whose influence the falling off in custom was thus directly attributable, persistently declined to bear any share whatever in the loss which his profession caused, and indeed regarded the circumstance from so grasping and narrow-minded a point of observation that he would not even go to the length of suffering this much-persecuted one to join the circle of his hearers without on every occasion making the customary offering. In this manner, a well-intentioned pursuit of riches has insidiously led this person within measurable distance of the bolted dungeon for those who do not meet their just debts, while the only distinction likely to result from his assiduous study of the customs and methods of those high in power is that of being publicly bowstrung as a warning to others. Manifestly, the pointed finger of the unreliable Kai Lung is a very treacherous guide. It is related, said a dispassionate voice behind him, that a person of limited intelligence, on being assured that he would certainly one day enjoy an adequate competence if he closely followed the industrious habits of the thrifty bee, spent the greater part of his life in anointing his thighs with the yellow powder which he laboriously collected from the flowers of the field. It is not so recorded, but doubtless the nameless one in question was by profession a maker of opium pipes, for this person has observed from time to time how that occupation above all others, tends to degrade the mental faculties, and to debase its followers to a lower position than that of the beasts of labor. Learn therefrom, O superficial Wang Yu, that wisdom lies in an intelligent perception of great principles, and not in a slavish imitation of details which are, for the most part, beyond your simple and insufficient understanding. Such may indeed be the case, Kai Lung, replied Wang Yu sullenly for it was the storyteller in question who had approached unperceived, and who now stood before them. But it is none the less a fact that, on the last occasion when this misguided person 
joined the attending circle at your uplifted voice, a Mandarin of the third degree chanced to pass through Wu Wei, and halted at the doorstep of the Fountain of Beauty, fully intending to entrust this one with the designing and fashioning of a pipe of exceptional elaborateness. This matter, by his absence, has now passed from him, and today, through listening to the narrative of how the accomplished Yuen Pell doubled his fortune, he is the poorer by many tales. Yet tomorrow, when the name of the Mandarin of the Third Degree appears in the lists of persons who have transferred their entire property to those who are nearly related to them in order to avoid it being seized, to satisfy the just claims made against them, replied Kai Long, you will be able to regard yourself the richer by so many tales. At these words, which recalled to the minds of all who were present, the not uncommon manner of behaving observed by those of exalted rank, and who freely engaged persons to supply them with costly articles without in any way regarding the price to be paid, Wang Yu was silent. Nevertheless, exclaimed a thin voice from the edge of the group which surrounded Kai Lung, it in no wise follows that the stories are in themselves excellent or of such a nature that the hearing of their recital will profit a person. Wang Yu may be satisfied with empty words, but there are others present who were studying deep matters when Wang Yu was learning the art of walking. If Kai Lung's stories are of such remunerative benefit as the person in question claims, how does it chance that Kai Lung himself, who is assuredly the best acquainted with them, stands before us in mean apparel, and on all occasions confessing an unassuming poverty? It is Yan He Pung, went from mouth to mouth among the bystanders. Yan He Pung, who traces on paper the words of chance and historical tales, and sells them to such as can afford to buy. And although his motive in exposing the emptiness of Kai Lung's stories may not be heaven-sent, inasmuch as Kai Lung provides us with such matter as he himself purveys, only at a much more moderate price, yet his words are well considered, and therefore must be regarded. Oh, Yan He Pung, replied Kai Lung, hearing the name from those who stood about him, and moving toward the aged person, who stood meanwhile leaning upon his staff, and looking from side to side with quickly moving eyelids, in a manner very offensive towards the storyteller. Your just remark shows you to be a person of exceptional wisdom, even as your well-bowed legs prove you to be one of great bodily strength. For justice is ever obvious and wisdom hidden, and they who build structures for endurance discard the straight and upright, and insist upon such an arch as you so symmetrically exemplify. Speaking in this conciliatory manner, Kai Lung came up to Yan He Pung, and taking between his fingers a disc of thick polished crystal, which the aged and short-sighted chant writer used for the purpose of magnifying and bringing nearer the letters upon which he was engaged, and which hung around his neck by an embroidered cord, the storyteller held it aloft, crying aloud, Observe closely, and presently it will be revealed and made clear how the apparently very conflicting words of the wise Yan He Pung, and those of this unassuming but nevertheless conscientious person who is now addressing you, are in reality as one great truth. With this assurance, Kai Lung moved the crystal somewhat, so that it engaged the sun's rays, and concentrated them upon the uncovered crown of the unsuspecting and still objectionably engaged person before him. Without a moment's pause, Yan He Pung leapt high into the air, repeatedly pressing a hand to the spot thus selected, and crying aloud, Evil gods and thunderbolts, 
but the touch was as hot as a scar left by the uncut nail of the sublime Buddha. Yet the crystal, remarked Kai Lung composedly, passing it into the hands of those who stood near, is as cool as the innermost leaves of the riverside sycamore, they declared. Kai Lung said nothing further, but raised both his hands above his head as if demanding their judgment. Thereupon a loud shout went up on his behalf, for the greater part of them loved to see the manner in which he brushed aside those who would oppose him, and the sight of the aged person, Yan He Pung, leaping far into the air, had caused them to become exceptionally amused, and in consequence very amiably disposed toward the one who had afforded them the entertainment. The story of Sin Heng began Kai Lung when the discussion had terminated in the manner already recorded, concerns itself with one who possessed an unsuspecting and ingenious nature, which ill-fitted him to take an ordinary part in the everyday affairs of life, no matter how engaging such a character rendered him among his friends and relations. Having at an early age been entrusted with a burden of rice and other produce from his farmer's fields to dispose of in the best possible manner at a neighboring mart, and having completed the transaction in a manner extremely advantageous to those with whom he trafficked, but very intolerable to the one who had sent him, it at once became apparent that some other means of gaining a livelihood must be discovered for him. Beyond all doubt, said his father, after considering the matter for a period, it is a case in which one should be governed by the wise advice and example of the Mandarin Pu Chao. Illustrious sire, exclaimed Sen Heng, who chanced to be present, the illiterate person who stands before you is entirely unacquainted with the one to whom you have referred. Nevertheless, he will, as you suggest, at once set forth and journeying with all speed to the abode of the estimable Pu Chao, solicit his experience and advice. Unless a more serious loss should be occasioned, replied the father coldly, there is no necessity to adopt so extreme a course. The benevolent Mandarin in question existed at a remote period of the Thang dynasty, and the incident to which an allusion has been made arose in the following way. To the public court of the enlightened Pu Chao, there came one day a youth of very inferior appearance and hesitating manner, who besought his explicit advice, saying, The degraded and unprepossessing being before you, O select and venerable Mandarin, is by nature and attainments a person of the utmost timidity and fearfulness. From this cause life itself has become a detestable observance in his eyes, for those who should be his companions of both sexes hold him in undisguised contempt making various unendurable allusions to the color and nature of his internal organs whenever he would endeavor to join them. Instruct him, therefore, the manner in which his cowardice may be removed, and no service in return will be esteemed too great. There is a remedy, replied the benevolent Mandarin, without any hesitation whatever, which, if properly carried out, is efficacious beyond the possibility of failure. Certain component parts of your body are lacking, and before the desired result can be obtained, these must be supplied from without. Of all courageous things, the tiger is the most fearless, and in consequence, it combines all those ingredients which you require. Furthermore, as the teeth of the tiger are the instruments with which it accomplishes its vengeful purpose, there reside the essential principles of its inimitable courage. Let the person who seeks instruction in the matter, therefore, do as follows. Taking the teeth of a full-grown tiger as soon as it is slain, and before the essences have time to return to the body, 
he shall grind them to a powder, and mixing the powder with a portion of rice, consume it. After seven days, he must repeat the observance, and yet again a third time, after another similar lapse. Let him then return for further guidance. For the present, the matter interests this person no longer. At these words the youth departed, filled with a new and inspired hope, for the wisdom of the sagacious Pu Chao was a matter which did not admit of any doubt whatever, and he had spoken with well-defined certainty of the success of the experiment. Nevertheless, after several days industriously spent in endeavoring to obtain by purchase the teeth of a newly slain tiger, the details of the undertaking began to assume a new and entirely unforeseen aspect. For those whom he approached as being the most likely to possess what he required, either became very immoderately and disagreeably amused at the nature of their quest, or regarded it as a new and ill-judged form of ridicule, which they prepared to avenge by blows and by base remarks of the most personal variety. At length, it became unavoidably obvious to the youth that if he was to obtain the articles in question, it would first be necessary that he should become adept in the art of slaying tigers, for in no other way were the required conditions likely to be present. Although the prospect was one which did not greatly attend to allure him, yet he did not regard it with the utterly incapable emotions which would have been present on an earlier occasion, for the habit of continually guarding himself from the onslaughts of those who received his inquiry in an attitude of narrow-minded distrust had inspired him with a newfound valor, while his amiable and unrestrained manner of life increased his bodily vigor in every degree. First perfecting himself in the use of the bow and arrow, therefore, he betook himself to a wild and very extensive forest, and there concealed himself along the upper foliage of a tall tree standing by the side of a pool of water. On the second night of his watch, the youth perceived a large but somewhat ill-conditioned tiger approaching the pool for the purpose of quenching its thirst, whereupon he tremblingly fitted an arrow to his bowstring, and profiting by the instruction he had observed, succeeded in piercing the creature to the heart. After fulfilling the observance laid upon him by the discriminating Pu Chao, the youth determined to remain in the forest and sustain himself upon such food as fell to his weapons, until the time arrived when he should carry out the rite for the last time. At the end of seven days, so subtle had he become in all kinds of hunting, and so strengthened by the meat and herbs upon which he existed, that he disdained to avail himself of the shelter of a tree, but standing openly by the side of the water, he engaged the attention of the first tiger which came to drink, and discharged arrow after arrow into its body with unfailing power and precision. So entrancing indeed had the pursuit become that the next seven days lengthened out into the apparent period of as many moons, in such a leisurely manner did they rise and fall. On the appointed day, without waiting for the evening to arrive, the youth set out with the first appearance of life, and penetrated into the most inaccessible jungles, crying aloud words of taunt-laden challenge to all the beasts therein, and accusing the ancestors of their race of every imaginable variety of evil behavior. Yet so great had become the renown of the one who stood forth, and so widely had the warning voice been passed from tree to tree, preparing all who dwelt in the forest against his anger, that not even the fiercest replied openly, though low growls and mutterings proceeded from every cave within a bowshot's distance around. Wearying quickly of such feeble and timorous demonstrations, the youth rushed into the cave from which the loudest murmurs proceeded, 
and there discovered a tiger of unnatural size, surrounded by the bones of innumerable ones whom it had devoured. For from time to time its ravages became so great and unbearable that armies were raised in the neighboring villages and sent to destroy it, but more than a few stragglers never returned. Plainly recognizing that a just and inevitable vengeance had overtaken it, the tiger made only a very inferior exhibition of resistance, and the youth, having first stunned it with a blow of his closed hand, seized it by the middle, and repeatedly dashed its head against the rocky sides of its retreat. He then performed for the third time the ceremony enjoined by the Mandarin, and having cast upon the cringing and despicable forms concealed in the surrounding woods and caves a look of dignified and ineffable contempt, set out upon his homeward journey, and in the space of three days' time reached the town of the versatile Pu Chow. Behold, exclaimed the person when, lifting up his eyes, he saw the youth approaching laden with the skins of the tigers and other spoils. Now at least the youth and maidens of your native village will no longer withdraw themselves from the company of so undoubtedly heroic a person. Illustrious Mandarin, replied the other, casting both his weapons and his trophies before his inspired adviser's feet. What has this person to do with the little ones of either sex? Give him rather the foremost place in your ever-victorious company of bowmen, so that he may repay in part the undoubted debt under which he henceforth exists. This proposal found favor with the pure-minded Pu Chow, so that in course of time the unassuming youth who had come supplicating his advice became the valiant commander of his army, and the one eventually chosen to present plighting gifts to his only daughter. End of section 18